This week on Medical Minefield, Dr. Ashalami. You can have an opinion and that's fine, but when you start sharing your opinion as a fact and saying this is the truth and it's not the full picture, then you're misleading people. And I think when it comes to cancer diagnosis, that's really dangerous. And Dr. Liz O'Riordan. I think it's really hard to talk about things like this and raise public awareness. And as someone who doesn't drink a lot and who has never been overweight, I think I'm putting myself out there for people to say, well, it's fine for you, you don't understand. Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I am Barney Kalman. And I am Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week we're asking, is it really victim blaming to point out that alcohol and obesity increases the risk of breast cancer? As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question about this or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at MedMinefield. Alcohol is a group one human carcinogen. This means that there is convincing evidence that it can cause cancer. And whatever your drinking habits are, cutting down will reduce your risk. There is no safe level of alcohol consumption. That was Dr Liz O'Riordan in clips she released on her social media channels earlier this month. Liz is a regular contributor to the Mail on Sunday. Uh, She's a breast surgeon who developed breast cancer herself. She uh, suffered breast cancer twice, in fact, before retiring from full-time medicine. She now devotes her life to writing, uh, lecturing, speaking, raising awareness. And she put out these videos to raise awareness of some of the things that increase the risk of breast cancer. She she points out that the, the things that most increase the risk of breast cancer are having breasts and age. But beyond that... It seems to be fairly well accepted. I mean, if you go to the Cancer Research UK website, for instance, they talk about alcohol certainly as being one of the biggest other risk factors in breast cancer, likewise obesity, and that these are lifestyle factors. There are things; they, These are things that we can do something about in order to reduce our risk. Liz wanted to just put out a bit about risk, explain what that means, uh, for instance, the very confusing 15% rise in risk if you drink, uh, have have one drink a day, you get a, a, t- a 10%, I think, rise in risk. Is that absolute risk? Well, this <laughs> is that going to be the. Well, lots of people, lots of people were, were asking, what does that mean? You're being alarmist, etc. It's relative risk. So that's relative to your own personal risk. So you, Eve, as a 30 year old woman, have an incredibly low risk of breast cancer. 31. Um, 31. So even if you have a drink every day and that increases your personal risk, it's it's going to be a small increase on your very on small... On an already small yeah, number. Yeah, mm-hmm. there is a 10% increase for every extra drink you have a day. Mm-hmm. So you could, if you were downing, you know, a bottle of wine a night... You could be you could be stacking up that risk. Oh my God, um, better change my habits. <laughs> I really wish you wouldn't do it in the studio as well. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> it has been a busy day. Eve, please, been a busy week. But it sort of blew up in her face a little bit, didn't it? Well, it, it did. Liz, Liz is writing about this for the Mail on Sunday this this weekend, and and she framed it very much in her own experiences as as a two times 
breast cancer patient herself, um, who, in her own words, drank like a fish in her young years. I'm that shot. I really didn't have her down for a. I've seen the photos. She shared them with me today, and and she she obviously she liked party. She was quite uh, reflective of it, and she said it gave her more confidence mm. that she felt like she was a nerd. And then it gave her some kind of identity that she was, you know, a nerd who could drink. And uh, she was uh, one of the uh, or first or first in her year at medical school to be uh, hospitalised with alcohol intoxication. Wow. And she said she was proud of it. What an achievement. Anyway, she she said that it makes her uncomfortable sometimes to think, has this, was this something that, because, I mean, she was obviously maybe perhaps at the more extreme end of, of, of drinking habits. But she got accused of victim blaming. She got accused of alarmism. Mm-hmm. There were many people who appreciated what she said, but there were many people who didn't like it at all. I imagine there was a lot of people who got quite exercised about obesity. That always seems to pull the trigger. People think that that's um, incredibly victim blaming. What do you think? I think that... I'm not sure as to the helpfulness of telling people that drinking a lot and being obese isn't the best idea for your health and could increase your risk of various conditions, including breast cancer. I think it's quite well known that there are significant health risks with those kinds of lifestyle habits and choices. And I don't think that there is a lot of evidence to show that ramming that down people's throats makes an awful lot of difference to what they choose to do in their daily life so that's kind of one thing and the other thing I guess is that although there is a small proportion I guess that we can control the larger proportion we can't control whether you're going to get breast cancer or not is pretty much out of your control on the whole and I don't know would you rather take the risk and spend your life doing the things that make you happy and bring you enjoyment and fulfillment and not Die wondering. As, is that as is that says, is that your bottle often. of wine a night? <laughs> but no, I do think there is something in what is it? One in two of us are going to get cancer. Is it one in two? One in three? Right. One in two? And uh, have a drink. Yeah, have a drink. <laughs> I mean, what different? Have is, a cupcake for the sake of a small decrease in risk. I mean, what an extra ten years of your life is? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying, but I just think that these things are are a balance. And really, how much does anyone know? what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years and how unlucky you might be. So so you may as well enjoy yourself while you get there. Who knows where we'll end up. Yeah, that's. I think that's my take. It's it's not very sensible. There but... is definitely a sort of obsession with reducing your risk of things, mm, isn't there? There's, mm-hmm. or it's, it's quite a beguiling concept. It's sort of like, let's live absolutely as long as we possibly can. And I just think, why? Or people want to know, maybe even if they don't do that, they want to know, what, what can I do to reduce my risk? Because it's this idea of control, but mm. the, tr- the sad truth is there is actually a very small, small, tiny proportion that we can control. The rest is completely random. Well, before we go any further, let's hear from someone who didn't think that what Liz said was particularly fair. Joining us now is Dr. Asha Lamy who is a GP and fat activist. Asha, thanks so much for joining us today. We are talking about whether or not it's fair to point out that certain lifestyle factors increase the risk of breast cancer. We're talking about this because Dr Liz O'Reardon recently shared a series of videos on her social media channels uh, that looked at the ways in which alcohol intake and overweight 
contributed to breast cancer risk, according to the research. It proved controversial. I mean, lots of people felt that she was, uh, lots of people thanked Liz for pointing out, you know, and clarifying certain facts. Others suggested that she was making people feel bad or guilty for developing breast cancer, as if she was saying it was somehow their fault. And I know you've got some opinions on those videos. Would you like to share that? Yeah, I mean, I don't whether or not people did feel bad, I mean, I'm sure if I had breast cancer, you know, in, in the body that I'm in, I probably would have felt bad. But I don't think that was her intention. And, I, I you know, I think anyone who suggests otherwise is, is, is not being fair. So I, I want to put that out there. First and foremost, my issue is with with the fact that she's misrepresenting the evidence, and I and I don't agree with what she said. I, I don't want to comment on alcohol because, to be honest, I've not done enough uh, research into it. My my only commentary can be on weight and overweight. Now, the evidence that she's stating that uh, you know being overweight puts you at an increased risk of breast cancer is actually not verified, not true. It's it's fair, unfair to misrepresent evidence like that. When you do an observational study, like the ones that she's talking about, when you look at a group of people and you say, okay, well, how many of these people had breast cancer and how many of them were overweight? You have to do everything you can to make sure that those studies are not biased. Otherwise, you're unable to use the data because the, the data is tainted. Now, there are certain things that you have to factor into this particular conversation. The main ones that I can think of when it comes to breast cancer and weight are medical weight stigma. Now we know, for example, that doctors are far less likely to examine fatter patients, they're far less likely to investigate their fatter patients, and they're far less likely to treat their fatter patients. And that is particularly of note with breast exams, because there is evidence to show that doctors do fewer breast exams on fatter patients and are less competent at doing breast exams on fatter patients. And also things like weight loss and vague symptoms that, that we that we really should be thinking about when it comes to cancer are often ignored or even celebrated in fat patients. So a fat patient can present with weight loss and be told, well, that's something to be happy about, whereas a thinner patient can present with weight loss and be told, oh, that's not something good. We need to look, you know, need to look into it. My understanding of, of what Liz was pointing out was uh, not simply the observational studies but also the work that has looked at the role of aromatase in okay. postmenopausal women. Uh, so yes. the, the more adipose cells you have, the more aromatase and therefore higher estrogen levels, and that this is an exacerbator of, of cancer. Sure. And we're all aware of that. We're all aware of the aromatase. However, again, as I'm saying, you, you can't give people cancer and therefore these are not interventional studies. Again, they are observational studies. But I mean, that's the same as saying, you know, it's the same as saying you can't, you know, give people cancer. So therefore you can't say that. No, smoke, no, no. Sorry, I mean, sorry. we know that uh, smoking causes cancer because because of, of observational studies also. But, you know, when there are multiple factors in research, such as knowing about the carcinogenic properties of of certain compounds as well as seeing signals in observational studies so so i, I just don't think it's fair to say that that it's not proven or that it's, it's simply it's an observational not, study that shows nothing no 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 and and it's not I, I do get what you mean about I, I do get what you mean about poor treatment of women who are overweight might contribute to poorer outcomes as well or less investigations etc which is a really good point but there aren't just observational studies. That's all I'm no, saying. No, no, but hang on a second. 
first of all, there are studies that show that premenopausal women are less likely to get cancer if they're fat. The studies that show that aromatase and the action, you know, that it has on cancer, certainly that it is a risk factor for cancer and that it is found in adipose cells. All of those things are true, but that does not go to mean that if you're fatter, you are therefore more likely to get cancer. You still can't. I mean, you can make associations and you can say that's fairly complex you know, a good sort of reason to believe that. But there's no evidence that losing weight is going to reduce your risk of breast cancer. There's no evidence that losing weight is going to reduce your risk of Mm. recurrence of breast cancer. So you get breast cancer and then you lose weight afterwards. There's no evidence that you're going to reduce your weight. Now, if it's all to do with aromatase and that's the only thing that's contributing to it, then weight loss would surely reduce the risk. And we don't have data to support that. So again, you can have an opinion And that's fine. But when you start sharing your opinion as a fact and saying this is the truth and it's not the full picture, then you're misleading people. And I think when it comes to cancer diagnosis, that's really dangerous because stigma, weight stigma, you know, you say it's a good point. It's not a good point. It's it's a fundamental issue that we are refusing to deal with in the medical profession. So it was absolutely right for people to call her to account and to say, look, you're well within your rights to give your opinion, but don't state it as fact. Dr. Lamy, how would you go about having these kinds of conversations? What do you think, you know, is there a way to do it, in your opinion, or should you just not at all? Yes, of course, uh, there's always a way. And it's not just my way, it's the correct way. In medical school, we are taught from day one, what you do is you give your patients the facts, the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits, the long-term implications, and all the treatment options available to them. So if I'm sitting down with someone who is a woman maybe having a health check, doesn't have cancer yet, and I want to give her some advice about breast cancer, which I think is a very reasonable thing to do, um, I would tell her all about the risks, you know, and what are the risks for breast cancer. And it's not just being overweight. I mean, there's also lots to do with breastfeeding, et cetera, et cetera. So you'd, you'd have to give the facts and the risks, and you you would certainly have to include aromatase in there and the studies that have shown the link. No question about that. But then you'd also have to say, but there are no studies that show that weight loss actually reduces your risk. And furthermore, there are several studies that show the harms of weight loss. So then a patient has to make up their own mind about whether they want to take the risk of losing weight or whether they don't. But my job is simply to give the facts and it's important to give all the facts. And I think the problem is that doctors love to give the facts about weight related conditions or whatever you want to call it. But they fail to say, oh, but by the way, there's no evidence that weight loss is going to either prevent this or fix this. Also, that up to 98% of people that attempt weight loss will find that they gain the weight back. Some people actually end up heavier. So up to two thirds of people are going to go on a diet, end up heavier. And that increases your risk if that's what you want to believe. So, you know, you have to be having these full conversations so that a patient can make an informed choice. That's consent. And that is what we're supposed to be doing, each and every one of us. It's not complicated. It's not the Ashalami theory of of medicine. It is medicine. Full stop. You've given us much food for thought once again. So, Dr. Ashalami, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. I want to go back to what we were talking about, this idea of victim blaming. Mm. You know, I mean, I completely understand that sentiment. I think anyone, I mean, I'll give you I'll give you an anecdote. I got talking to a reader who wrote in and said they knew that the reason that they had developed lung cancer was because they smoked, but people were dreadfully horrible to them about it. 
people thought it was absolutely fine to tell them all the time oh well you know you did smoke and you know doctors were very unsympathetic and they just felt that they were constantly reminded that Mm. that they were dying Mm. and it was their own fault and that there may have been a situation where this might not have happened and if they would have done something different yeah i've told this anecdote about how i felt very sympathetic i didn't feel like to add to the fact that this person had terminal cancer that she should also be made to feel dreadful about that you know, guilty about that. No one I've spoken to agreed with me. Mm. Everyone said it was her fault. Really? Yes. People. Who are these people? They don't sound very nice. No, but seriously, we we ran an article, I I remember. I remember. And there was not a single comment under the article. No letters that we got were sympathetic. I mean, there are some things it's okay to blame the victim, I've discovered. But other things, perhaps not. And there, there, there definitely is a, a sentiment outside of smoking, which is free reign, just, you know, slap them in the face um, on top of their terminal illness. You can do whatever you want <laughs> you to a smoker. You can do whatever you want to a smoker. Yeah. There does seem to be this this sentiment, maybe it exists only on social media, and that people actually outside of, of that in the real world, mm. uh, you know, take on board discussions with with doctors about risk what raises it what lowers it Mm. as a neutral thing however there does seem to be you know people like to have a hot take don't they on social media yes absolutely and you know if someone says kind of the point you know drinking alcohol might raise your risk of various different cancers uh, kicking back against that and saying, yeah, well, you know, you're just saying that it's, our, you know, someone's fault for having cancer. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of almost a trend to disagree with the facts. I do see where you're coming from there. I do think that with a lot of that conversation, that is probably what it is, you know, or they feel personally aggrieved or personally offended by what's being said. But I do sort of understand where they're coming from in that if you are a person who either has an illness or maybe worried about an illness or is suspects they have an illness reading that can feel quite offensive because it feels like it is a personal attack yeah i guess doctors should always be looking for ways to improve their bedside manner or public health experts to better communicate messages uh, without turning people off. I know with HIV, there's a lot of good research now that shows that the initial approach of trying to scare the bejesus out of people mm-hmm. was very counterproductive in terms of public health. That the by saying anyone can get it and you're all going to die <laughs> and having a huge tombstone falling over on an advert with a volcano yeah. exploding. Who came up with that genius idea? Was it Saatchi? I can't remember. I think it, yeah, I think it might have been. It might have been. Well, I mean, it was iconic. Mm. Um, but in the end, those, those campaigns were a complete failure. Yeah, so, I mean, there's obviously a need to get it right, to get the back. I mean, we saw it with COVID as well. That they kind of repeated the trick with COVID and tried to terrify people or make people feel guilty in order to get them to behave in certain ways. Or... And with COVID, it was, I mean, obviously it's not the same as breast cancer, but there was a lot of victim blaming, really. There was mm. this kind of idea that you only got COVID if you were irresponsible, if you didn't wear your mask properly, if you went to the supermarket when you shouldn't have gone to the supermarket. You know, countless friends of mine have had arguments with their parents because they blame their mum for going to the shops when they well, shouldn't it, have. But who knows it if that's completely set up it. a yeah. scenario yeah. where where you could have be mm. you could be accused for killing grandma yeah. if you happen to, to to not follow the rules Absolutely. to the Absolutely. When the truth is like everything 
we just never know mm. why something happened. It could have been because of a whole host of other reasons. Mm. Well, look, before we go any further, let's speak to Liz <laughs> about the whole Debacle. controversy. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Liz O'Riordan, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we're talking today about your recent social media posts, your videos raising awareness of things that increase the risk of breast cancer and breast cancer recurrence. They proved rather controversial. You you pointed out in the in the first series of clips that alcohol and obesity were both known to increase the risk. And although many people thanked you, there was also a bit of a backlash, wasn't there? What are your thoughts on on the negative comments that people accuse you of victim blaming, of being alarmist? Do you think that they they might be right? I think it's really, really hard to talk about things like this and raise public awareness. And as someone who doesn't drink a lot and who has never been overweight, I think I am putting myself out there for people to say, well, it's fine for you. You don't understand. And it's really hard as a doctor because you want to share that information that there are health risks associated with alcohol and living with obesity and the fact that that they can increase the risk of women getting breast cancer and increase the risk of it coming back. And I know it's not easy for people to reduce the weight and a lot of people need more help, but I was quite shocked by how extreme some of the negative comments were, especially when I tried to do it sensitively. But when you're not living in someone's shoes, it's really hard to guess how they're going to take it. When you say you were shocked about how, you know, the the strength of some of the feelings, could you expand on that a bit? Yeah, I guess the first rule of medicine is do no harm. And I never wanted to hurt anybody's feelings. And part of me felt awful that I'd made people feel like that. And I never wanted anyone for them to think I'm blaming them. And it made me think, should I talk about this stuff at all? Should I just stick to my safe little space of what is breast cancer and, and what the operations are? But I thought, no. It is good that it's made people uncomfortable and it might make them think a little bit more and it might make some people change their life choices. It's really hard when you hear those bad comments because you just take them personally. Now, Liz, you talked a bit about this and we've spoken about this since, but you've not always not drunk much. No. Is it fair to say? It is. So um, I remember having my first gin and tonic on holiday as a teenager, drinking my mum and dad's because it was something the cool kids did. And... I was a very nerdy, geeky girl and alcohol gave me confidence. And at medical school back in the 90s, we drank a lot. If you weren't working, you were drinking or you had a hangover. And many of my friends would go into work, still drunk the next day and the nurses would sort you out. It was a way of coping with the really long hours and the stresses of the job. And I drank a lot. And it made me think, God, is that why I got breast cancer? We know it's only a tiny part of why women do get breast cancer. And we will never know at the moment the exact reason. But you do think, was my lifestyle to blame? Well, I did anyway. What about obesity, Liz? Because Mm. from what I understand, the evidence is a little bit more complicated because there isn't great data to show that when you lose weight, you reduce your risk of breast cancer. So is that actually true? So I think that the trouble, we know that if you take a group of women if you are over, if you are living with obesity, your risk of getting a breast cancer recurrence is increased by 35 to 40%. There aren't many trials that have shown whether losing that weight can reduce the risk of recurrence. And this is why to prove losing weight is the only thing that's making a difference. You have to have hundreds of thousands of women who are completely identical with their treatment and lifestyle choices. And it's really hard to get that data. 
And I think a lot of people with diets and exercise, you may lose five, 10 percent of your body weight if you're living with obesity, but that may not be enough to change the risk. So we don't have that information to show it works. But from a heart health point of view, it does make sense to try, if you can, to bring your weight down. I guess the thing is Mm. that for years and years, there's been multiple public health campaigns to get people to lose weight simply by using educational tools and telling them of all the risks that were involved with obesity, from diabetes to heart health, etc. So do you really think that educating women and telling them that being obese is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer is going to make all that much difference? No. And I think it's horrible because I've had patients come to me saying I've put on weight with a menopausal treatment, that they're the drugs that are making me menopausal. And I said, no, but there's no medical evidence why tamoxifen should make you put on weight. And then I, as a slim person, put on 10 percent of my body weight when I became menopausal. And it's not much, but I've gone up a dress size or two. And you think this this is awful. And these are the drugs I'm being given to stop my breast cancer coming back. I am eating the same and exercising the same. And it's really hard to hear. You've got to lose weight and you've got to stop drinking and you've had cancer and it might come back despite all of that. But I do think for people living with obesity, we need to give them more support, you know, the various drugs, operations to help. Because it's it's not just as simple for many people as eating less and exercising more. And if there are things we can do to help people living with obesity, bring their body weight down to improve their chances of health, I think we need to do that. Liz, you've spoken about how uh, today you feel in the best shape of your life. How have you managed that despite having been through breast cancer treatment and being on tamoxifen? It was a bit ironic, really. There was I spouting the powers of exercise. We know that exercise, being active, can halve your risk of your cancer coming back, independent of body weight and alcohol. And I was doing the running and doing the cycling, but I wasn't lifting the weights. And it's resistance training that's almost more important for reducing your risk of breast cancer and bone health. I thought, right, I've got to practice what I preach. So I started going to a gym. Then in lockdown, I did it at home. And it was really hard. I had to eat a lot more protein. I had to watch what I ate, but I could do it. And it showed me that it is possible to change your body and feel fitter and stronger, but it's really hard work and you've got to want to do it. And the minute you stop, your body starts to get soft again and it's easy for weight to pile on. And it's hard to make that part of your daily routine. And I do it because I want to stay alive for as long as possible. But I get how hard it is. I guess that's the thing, isn't it? There's so much around about prolonging life for as long as possible, which obviously you can understand but like you know it's it's for some people may they may think at what cost yeah what I love doing is going out and getting legless and uh, eating lots of cake but do you think as well this is what I was going to say earlier that and especially during the 90s Liz I don't know if you felt this but there was a there was a sort of a mini revolution for women yeah in that it was suddenly acceptable or cool, and you had people like Zoe Ball and various Ladette other ca- culture. Ladette culture, and it was yeah, exactly. You could yeah, drink a pint women instead drinking of a half pint. pint. Like, oh my god, I can drink what the boys are having. And then all the Alka Pops came. Absolutely, like, and there was Sex in the City as well, where they were constantly mm. drinking yeah. hard liquor. 
it, it was this idea that, that, that women were being told it was cool to drink heavily. Mm. Likewise, with exercise, there's a big barrier to women exercising. Mm. I mean, there's just very topsy-turvy messages yeah. specifically we, for women that we've, we've got terribly low levels of, of confidence when it comes to women participating in sport, going to the gym. And I, I've written before about this um, strange uh, situation that seems to happen whenever there's a, an exercise trend for women. It, it tends to kind of veer into some sort of soft porn sexualized version of itself. I know all the adverts, the women in sporting gear, you know, they're, they're covered in oil on the cover of magazines and Absolutely. the skimpy workout gear. And it's, that's why the this girl can adverts were fantastic. That woman going in a swimming costume, mm, pulling her mm, swimsuit mm. out of a bum. Real women. And it doesn't have to be the latest craze mm. buying all the kits. That's what lockdown was brilliant for. Videos you can do at home, resistance bands, going for a walk, just getting your heart rate up. I've started doing open water swimming, doing it with a community. Ooh. So you're doing it with other people. So yeah, you're accountable to it. So you, you get that sense of community and you want to keep going because you're doing it with someone. That really, really helped me. I guess the problem is at the moment that our lives are so fast paced and busy and everyone is I know. more and more stretched. You know, there's financial restrictions, etc. Completely. You think you don't have time mm. and then you realise you spent five hours binge watching Netflix. Mm. Yes. Yeah, actually, I could have done half an hour of weight. A familiar you know. problem. Yes. <laughs> there is time. In, in scrolling through in interiors it. on Pinterest is my current. Exactly. I, I want to leave you with an image of Liz. When I spoke to her the other day, she'd been swimming oh, in, in water that had ice on it outdoors. Yes. And you survived. <laughs> She's stronger. Yeah. She's stronger it, for it. Oh, Liz. I literally shivered when she told me. In the summer when I was doing triathlons, full wet to everything, but I started doing it with an amazing group of women. And we're only in for minutes. We're really, really sensible. And often it's the tea and cake afterwards. But that, that buzz that I get just clears my mental health. I can't think of anything else. I just feel completely free. And that, for me, helps me keep going. Amazing. It's finding something you love and learning to look after your body. And I'm fine if people... I mean, I still have a glass of bubbly and a bit of cake every now and again. It's that 80-20 rule. But I think you only feel like that when you've had cancer because you suddenly realise good life is short. But when you're young, Mm. you're invincible. It's never going to happen. So you don't believe people like me telling you, don't drink. Yeah. Well, look, thanks so much for finding some time to talk to us, Liz. As ever, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to make myself sound really uncool, but, oh, you know, I mean, I've, I've reflected, like Liz, I, I think I, I probably indulged... A bit of a wild child. A little bit too much, yes. When it was the 90s, I was a ladette. I wouldn't know I was two. <laughs> but you weren't, you weren't, you were never a big drinker, were you? At university. You you tried it once, though, didn't you? I tried it once. My problem was always that I tried to drink and I would just vomit all the time. Well, lucky old you. Yeah. I thought I was allergic to alcohol for a period of time. Well, you were were saved. Uh, But recently I was asked by a, a friend who never did any of that why I spent my teens and 20s getting blotto. And I said, oh, you know, it was just just having fun. And they looked at me as if to say, really? (laughs) And I guess I've never, I'd never before that, I'd never really reflected on what was really going, as they say in theory, what was really going on? Well, your adolescence and and 20s are awful. They're terrible years. Right. Okay. So, and you you want to escape, et cetera, et cetera. But why in our culture is blowing your brains out the default? Because we're very emotionally repressed. Oh. So we don't talk about our feelings, we numb them. Well, 
end of episode the end. <laughs> <laughs> i mean any more any more on that <laughs> Um, I think that's probably where I got to after about a month of therapy. (laughs) I think that Brits live in this culture where we are so used to just trying to disguise things that maybe are quite obvious and distract ourselves from situations and emotions that are difficult to deal with. Because, you know, it's very stiff upper lip, isn't it? Anyway, we've we've kind of gone on a bit of a tangent. I mean, ultimately, we should be able to talk about things like obesity in mm. a neutral way, um, whether or not we call it a disease or whether we call it a lifestyle or, you know, whatever it is. And I do slightly worry about this complete dismissing of all of the evidence. I have spent a long time being very interested in this and find, finding it very difficult to know where I, I sit on all of it. But... I do agree with Dr. Lamy that there is some problem with the way that the research is perhaps communicated, that it's so clear cut and and that's not actually true. But I think to just dismiss it and say that there is no relationship between obesity and cancer and diabetes and heart risk is quite irresponsible. I also do think it's a, it's a very good point to make, and Liz made it well, that ultimately the people who end up discussing this more often than not, are quite thin. And I think that it's really difficult for anyone to understand what effect that has on your psychology when those conversations are constantly around you and they are relating to you and your body, but they don't actually affect the person who's talking about it, but they affect you. I think that we need to have more people who are affected by these things, who are, who, who are living with obesity, involved in these kinds of conversations but i mean liz pointed out what would they rather she was criticized for being a thin person saying that people weren't raised risk because of their weight but i think we need to in fact liz has worked very very hard yeah to yeah achieve what she has which is incredible but liz for whatever reason was able to do that there's a lot of people who would love to be able to do that but Mm. have a life which means that it doesn't allow them to And I also think that, you know, I'd just be more interested to know what is it that's offensive? What is it that doesn't sit right and that feels very difficult to hear? And and how could we package that message slightly more appropriately and in a way that was maybe easier to swallow? I I don't think that we're going to know the answer as people who never have to worry about someone looking at you and pointing and saying, look at that stupid fat person. Well, much as I could talk to you all day long and often do about this subject, Eve, we're going to have to draw a line. Uh, but you can read all about this with Dr. Liz O'Reardon writing in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and all the latest health news. You can consume that in newspaper format on mailplus.co.uk or the Mail app. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. We will see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.